0: Good morning. good morning if you brought your Bible this morning I hope you did or your app please turn with me to the book of first John where we are continuing our series this morning called absolute certainty and last week a little rewind you may remember we were talking a lot about love and we first considered the world's view of love it's interesting Um, It's often illustrated with pictures kind of like these. Lots of hearts, lots of sentiment and feeling and emotion and whatnot. Flowers, chocolates. There's nothing wrong with all of that. But this is the pervasive view of love within our culture. We see it everywhere. But in contrast to this, we talked about agape love. A divine love. And we saw agape love comes from God. And that God is love. He alone defines what love is. And not the other way around. And we looked at the fact that. Agape love is not some. Sappy sentimental kind of emotion. But rather. It's an unconditional. Humble. And sacrificial love. The giving of oneself for the benefit of others. And we also saw. That it's not a passive love. Agape love is active love. It's an action. And not only that. A really important aspect of that we said. Is that it's often an action that's opposed to a feeling. It runs contrary to a feeling. So it doesn't matter if we feel like doing something. Love may require us to do that anyway. And so... As we dive into the text then this week, you're going to see a lot of overlap there. There's a fair amount of repetition. I almost thought, gee, maybe I could just skip over that. It's like, it's like John, on the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just took all these little pieces and put them together into this section that we're in now. And I thought, well, we talked about that, we talked about that. But the repetition is there for a reason. I don't know how you feel about repetition Um, I heard about a husband who was trying to convince his wife that women talk way more than men. And so he gave her some stats. He said, the average woman uses 20,000 words a day, whereas men, only 10,000. And she thought about that for a minute. And she said, well, the reason is because I have to repeat everything I say. (laughs) He looked at her stunned and said, what? repetition is not necessarily bad we all need it God's put repetition in his word and it's not just for the men <laughs> what <laughs> it's not just for the men it's for the women and all of us too and so there's a reason why we see these things repeating but the neat thing even though it's a similar topic it has a different nuance to it that actually develops it even further and and allows us to kind of comprehend and apply it in different ways so um, the message title this morning is the same as last no I'm kidding it's not different title I'm not repeating the title but the message title is absolute certainty that we are his and our text will be 1st John chapter 4 verses 13 through 21 and we'll be looking for three parts in the outline first of all his indwelling presence in verses 13 to 15 secondly our enduring confidence in verses 16 through 18 and finally the ongoing evidence in verses 19 through 21 and John if you could bring that up for me on that back monitor that'd be great so let's get started by reading through these verses together first John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, let's start by looking at this first section, his indwelling presence. And it's in verses 13 through 15. Um, verse eight. Verse 13 begins with some familiar words for John, we know. Maybe just underline that in your Bible, we know. It doesn't say we think or we wish or we hope or wouldn't it be nice if. It says we know. And that's, this idea of knowing is, is, is touched on over 30 times in this short little letter. And at the root of this is the Greek word gnosis, which means to, have, to know. But more than that, it means to know absolutely, to be very certain of something. And this is opposed to another word, agnosis, a meaning not, gnosis meaning knowing, or where we get the word agnostic, not knowing. God wants us to know. And so there is a lot that we can know for sure. And it starts off right here in verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. Now I want to take you back just a little bit. When Jesus was with his disciples and they had that final meal in the upper room. And right after that, they would walk out and they go across the Kidron Valley and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be betrayed, tried that night into the morning, and crucified that next morning. At that meal together, just after the meal was over, Jesus prayed with his disciples, and it's the longest recorded prayer, Jesus, in the Bible. It's often referred to as the high priestly prayer because it's an intercessory prayer. He was praying for his disciples, and he was praying for the people of Riverside. He was praying for the disciples and all who would believe in his name through them, through the disciples. He was praying for us. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for those uh, who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent them. Now imagine for a minute that you're there. You just had this meal A lot of probably emotions, some of the things they've been talking about. And Jesus is praying over you and you hear these words, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. I think that would sound a little strange, wouldn't it? Maybe you'd say, what is he talking about? Does he mean like be with him and he be with us? What does this mean? In him, in us. How is that even possible? Well, just before this prayer... Right after dinner, Jesus said some other things. It probably sounded very strange. He said, this is in John chapter 14. And by the way, next Sunday, Dan's going to begin teaching through chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. We're going to be going through that high priestly prayer. But right before that, the same evening, after dinner, Jesus said this. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you on that day. You will realize that I am in the father and you are in me and I am in you. Did you notice a significant transition that happens in that passage? It says, he, meaning the Spirit, lives with you for now, but he will be in you. And he also says, on that day you realize that I am in you. God would actually indwell his followers beginning on the day of Pentecost. Now this might not be a big surprise to you, but this was something totally new. To the disciples. The idea of God dwelling within us. I find absolutely no reference. In the Old Testament. To God indwelling his followers. It talks about his presence. Being with them. But never in them. This was new. The the Gnostics. Kind of heretics of the day. They taught that God was distant from his creation. That he created everything. And then he. Stepped way back at a distance and just watched it all go on. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Old Testament promised us Emmanuel, God with us. And true to his word, God sends his son, the incarnation. He comes in human flesh. We celebrate this at Christmas. But have you ever thought that God could have come down and saved mankind and then just gone back up into heaven and stayed distant and said, okay, I did my work. You're on your own. He could have, but he didn't. Right before his ascension, Jesus said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he's taken up into heaven. Now, even that seems a little strange to me. Surely I'm with you always to so the very end of the age. Bye-bye. <laughs> and he's like, gone. what was that all about? I would be scratching my head. But just 10 days later, we have the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. God would continue to be with his people. I don't think Emmanuel was talking just about his birth at Christmas. I think it was also pointing to Pentecost. God with us. And Jesus said this about Pentecost in John 14. In the upper room, he said, On that day you will realize That I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus, in you. At Pentecost, I don't know if you think of it that way, but the Holy Spirit, one of the names used for the Holy Spirit, is actually the Spirit of Jesus. And in another place, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This would be nothing less than the ongoing presence of God And Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus could say, surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. I'm ascending, but I'm going to send another counselor. It'll be the Spirit of Christ. How cool is that? You just can't avoid the Trinity throughout the pages of Scripture. So as far as the certainty of our faith goes. And we have the testimony that God did come in human flesh. John opened his letter by talking about we've seen it, we touch it, we heard it. And we're telling you it's real. And he writes here in verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. They saw it. They saw the miracles. They saw his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Many of them saw his transfiguration. They saw that. But we have even more testimony than that. God assures us of our salvation in the most intimate way possible. He indwells those who believe. Think about that. God living within us. Verse 13 says, we know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And in verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Isn't that amazing? God living within us. I mean, Old Testament, the presence of God in the temple. You can read like Isaiah And the prophets, and you can read about when they encountered the presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God in the temple. Things filled with smoke. and Whoa. But God is here right now indwelling us. His glory is seen in us. As New Testament believers. So, we have this assurance because we have the spirit. And note that it's not the presence of any spiritual gift that is the assurance of our salvation. It's the presence of the Spirit himself. I wish we had more time to develop that particular thought, but we're going to pass over that for now. But look at the last half of verse 15. God lives in him and he in God. God living in us. It's not just a metaphor for a certain mood or mindset, like where you've got the Christmas spirit. You know, people talk a lot about the Christmas spirit or we have, he has a spirit of adventure. That's just like a mindset, an attitude. That's not what this is talking about. It's not metaphorical. It's literal. God literally indwells in us by his spirit. 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16 challenges us with this. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? That's not. That's not hyperbole. It's not metaphorical. It's a literal truth that God dwells in his followers, in his people, his church, by his spirit. Now, another mistake that people can make in regard to the Holy Spirit is thinking that he's just some kind of mystical power or impersonal force. But he's not. He's a person. He's a living spiritual being. Jesus said, I will send him to you. Not, I'll send it to you and it'll help you. It'll do this. No, him, he. Think about some of the very personal works of the Holy Spirit. I've listed a few of them here. He teaches. This passage says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The Spirit, he reveals truth. Scripture says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He confronts sin. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The spirit, he prays with people and for people. Scripture says the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Not only that, he comforts and encourages people. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that it may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This same spirit has emotions and feelings and a will. You can actually grieve the spirit of God. So these are not the works of some impersonal force. But of a very personal relational being. And the reason I mention this is because how we view the Holy Spirit is going to affect how we interact with the Spirit of God. If we think of him as just some impersonal force, then we're sure not going to turn to him and draw upon him for wisdom or comfort or strength or direction. But if we have a right understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, we'll have a much deeper, a much more personal and meaningful relationship with God through him. I can say without hesitation that I feel God's indwelling presence in my life, I think every day, in many different ways. I hear his voice, an inner voice speaking to my heart. I experience him giving me insight and understanding into his word. This happens all the time. It's like, that did not come from me. I don't have that background training, knowledge. That's the spirit of God revealing truth as I study his word. I receive his comfort in incredible ways in the most difficult of times. I can feel that. I feel him leading me very specifically and very personally. I know when it's God leading me. I feel them changing me, changing my heart, my motives, my priorities. I feel that going on within. You, I'm sure, experience these same things too. And we're not alone. There's the testimony of millions of people over thousands, 2,000 years who have encountered something very unique, very, very amazing. And that is a relationship with God personally through his Holy Spirit. Every one of them says, this is something real and it's life changing. Now, as I'm talking about this, some of you may be thinking, eh, that's a bunch of hooey. (laughs) <laughs> that's just, that just, that just something that Christians say to try to make Christianity attractive, to draw us to this gospel. Well, if you think or feel that way, I can promise you the Spirit of God is not in you. And that's, I'm, not just, I'm not saying that to be critical or to be harsh. I'm saying that because that's what God says. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man or woman... Without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Until you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you will not understand spiritual things. You'll read this book and it'll make no sense to you because you don't have the Spirit teaching, interpreting, giving you wisdom and insight. But the good news is That doesn't have to be the case. If you're going, this is crazy talk. Why am I here? It doesn't have to be the case. Look at verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Do you know what that word anyone means? It literally means anyone. (laughs) Okay, I looked at the Greek. It means anyone. Some translations might say whosoever, but that means anyone. I just don't accept the notion that God has predetermined that some people will have no capacity to believe. And are destined straight to hell from birth. I just, I don't believe that. I think that contradicts the very character and the purpose of God. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yes, God has to draw them, granted. But Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. So what's holding you back? I don't think you can blame God. I don't think it's any failure on his part. He wants to draw you. He wants to place his spirit in you. He wants to enlighten you, open your eyes to spiritual things, to the reality of who God is. And to the reality of the love that he has for you. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, put, put your own name in there. If Paul acknowledges, if Brenda acknowledges, Bob acknowledges, and so on. If you acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is, and you you admit your sin and you put your faith in what he's done. Then he'll make you his child and he'll fill you with his spirit and with his love. Now, before we move on, I want to touch on one more reality of God living within us. And that is that for believers, we take him everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, the spirit of Christ goes with us. He's present for everything we do, for everything we see. He's there. Now, that can be good. Or that can be bad. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Believers in Christ. Brothers and sisters. I'm speaking to you only. Have you been places this week that you shouldn't have gone? You took the spirit there with you. God was there with you. Have you done things you shouldn't have done? God was there with you. And this passage says, you're going you're to expose him to that? Are you going to ignite? It? Not ignite. There's another word I'm looking for. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to take and emerge? You're going to expose him to this? See, God lives in us. And he goes wherever we go. So if you had this feeling, boy, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. It's probably the Spirit of God convicting you, convicting me, warning us and prompting us to change. So if you're a believer, you know that you are his child because of his indwelling presence. You have the Spirit of God in you, which leads us to the second point, our enduring confidence. Look at what the text says about this. It says in verse 16, And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Now your translation may say, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. I think the proper sense here is more than just to believe, it's to trust in it, to put our weight on it, to rely upon it. You might just pencil that in. And so we know and rely upon the love that God has for us. I think the NIV got it right there. We rely upon this. When I read that, it just causes me to breathe a huge sigh of relief. (sighs) See, we're not trusting and relying on our love for God. Because you know what? My love for God can really waver. We're trusting and relying on the love God has for us. Let me ask you some things. Who is it that sent his only son, one and only son, into the world that we might live through him? God did, right? Who died for us when we were still his enemies? God did. Who made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions? God did. Who gave us his spirit to live in us? God did. Who began this good work in you? God did. Who will carry it on to completion and to the day of Christ Jesus? God will. So whose love should we be relying upon? God's love. That's the point of this passage. Think about it. God loved us before we were even born. Even before the creation of the world. He loved us. And even when our mortal bodies are dead in the grave, God's still going to be loving us. How long have we loved God? Two, ten, thirty, maybe fifty years? Maybe a little more for some? God loves us for all eternity. We're not relying upon our love for God. We're relying and trusting upon the love that God has for us. It says, we know and we rely on the love God has for us. To borrow a phrase from R.A. Torrey, this verse is a soft pillow for a tired heart. Think about that. We can find rest in it. When all the busyness of today is over and you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, maybe just thank God for his eternal love. Thank him that you are his Because of his love. That even when you're gone, when your mortal body is in the grave and your soul is with the Lord, he will love you then. He'll love you through all eternity. Thank him that no one can snatch you out of his hand. You're held fast by the love of God. He's got this. He's got you. He's got me. I love that. I need to hear that. Because I can get too caught up in how well am I doing loving God. I'm not saying that's not important. But we rely upon the fact that God loves us. Praise God. Verse 16 continues. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Here's the thing. You cannot be around God and not be changed by his great love. It's impossible. Because God is love. So, if we're not loving others, then we're not spending the time we should with the God who loves us. So see this verse, this passage, it's both a comfort. We can rely and trust in the love God has for us. And it's a caution. There's a lot of caution in this passage too. A young lady named Helen came home from a youth camp. And she told her sister, Joyce, that she had a fantastic time. She said, we had terrific sessions on how to have personal devotions. And I, have, and I plan to have personal devotions every single day. Well, a week later, while Joyce was running the vacuum cleaner, she heard Helen screaming, do you have to make all that noise? Don't you know I'm trying to have my devotions? And after the verbal explosion, there's a big slamming of the door. Do you see the disconnect there? Shut, turn that off. I'm having my personal devotions with the God of love. (laughs) See, Helen hadn't yet learned that personal devotions are not an end in and of themselves. But here's the thing. If Helen continues her devotions and comes to know this God of love, he will change her. It will be impossible for her to have a relationship with God and not be changed into the the character of God. Our our relationship with others is always, always, always a reflection of our relationship with God. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him, it says. And verse 17, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. Your translation might say, love is perfected uh, with us. Now, it's not speaking of perfect in the sense of flawless, it's speaking of perfect in the sense of complete. Have you, you've heard the phrase, oh, he was a perfect stranger. What does that mean? It means he was a complete stranger. It doesn't mean, boy, that guy did nothing wrong. He's a perfect stranger. No, you don't even know him. How would you know that? He was a complete stranger. That's what perfect means. So you might just pencil in complete there. Here again, I think the NIV captures it best. In this way, love is made complete among us. And it's a really cool word. It's the word teleo. And it's closely related to another word that you probably know, "to tetelestai. Remember when Christ was on the cross, his very last words, tetelestai, it is finished, done. Well, that's what this word says. Love is finished. It's completed. It's made complete in us. Same root word. Now, we saw last time in verse 12 that if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, when we love others, the fullness of God's agape love, his divine love, is displayed in sinners who have been transformed from God-haters to God-lovers to people-lovers. That's the glory of God on display within his people. And when you see that kind of love working in your own life, and you feel that, well, verse 17 says, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. We showed a character of Christ. In other words, we know we're a child because his divine nature is on display within us. There's just no other, there's no other explanation for that type of love. Have you ever done something just in, in selfless love and, and thought, man... That felt so good. I wouldn't have ever done that before. I can't believe, in fact, that I just did that. And it was easy. And it felt good. And I want to do it again. That type of divine agape love, that's what it's talking about here. I hope you feel that often. You go, where is that coming from? That's just not my old self. That's like... Me, 2.0, 3.0. I'm different. I've changed. Well, see, that's God's love being made complete in you. And when you see that, you feel that, it should give you confidence, assurance that you are his child. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not... Made perfect in love. Do you fear the day of judgment? It's a real thing. But if you fear that. Well there's a problem there. Perfect love drives out fear. When that day of judgment comes. A child of God who's been living in love. Has nothing to fear at all. Because Jesus has already taken that judgment for us. And we've been living in his love. There's a story, you've probably heard it. It's from many years ago of a father walking with his daughter on the grassy plains on the Canadian prairie. And in the distance they saw a prairie fire. And they realized that this fire would soon engulf them. The father knew there was only one way of escape. They couldn't outrun it. The only thing they could do would be to quickly begin a fire right there where they were... And burn a large patch of grass. When the fire drew near. They would stand right there. On the section that had already burned. And when the flames did approach them. The little girl was terrified. And her father assured her. The flames cannot get to us now. We're standing where the fire has already burned. Well this is how it is for a believer in Christ. Christ. God's righteous wrath for our sin was already poured out upon Jesus on the cross. If you're in Christ, you will not suffer the penalty for your sin. Because you're standing where the fire is already burned. This is the whole idea behind a a word that we touched on last time, propitiation. Big Christianese, I, I never hear this outside of a Bible study. But propitiation, the NIV translates translated it atoning sacrifice. And it's found in 1 John 4, uh, verse 10. It says, This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as, a, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, as a propitiation for our sin. That's what the ESV says, a propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of an offended party so as to bring about reconciliation. It's closely related to an unusual Greek word, halasterion. And that word, when literally, literally translated, means mercy seat. Propitiation, mercy seat. They're almost the same root. So when the Bible says that God has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's literally saying he sent his son to be our mercy seat. The one who transforms a place of judgment into a place of mercy. See if you're in the middle of that fire's coming. That burned area is a mercy seat. It's already burned there. It's been transformed. Whoever... Lives in love, lives in God. And we have confidence on the day of judgment, not fear. Because Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the righteous wrath of God. God poured out his wrath on his own son. So that he wouldn't have to pour it out on me and on you. That's the truth of the gospel. Jesus is our mercy seat. The flames can't get to us now. Because we're standing where the fire is already burned. This is our enduring confidence. Confidence from right now on until the day of judgment. So let's look finally at the ongoing evidence then. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Let me just stop there. It's such a simple verse. We love because he first loved us. What causes us to love God? It's not the fear of the coming judgment. It's our response to his love. We love him with an agape love, unconditionally, humbly, sacrificially. Because he loved us with an agape love. He loved us first. And more than that, it's more than just the fact of his love. It's the realization and the experience of his love. That causes us to love him. See his love has been there all along. His love for you has been there all along. But if you haven't come to that place of repentance. You haven't experienced it. In a personal way. In the transformation of your spiritual death. The spiritual life. So it's the experience of God's love. That causes us to love him more. And more and more. And. It's the experience of God's love that overflows out of our life into love for others around us. See, we don't, we can't manufacture agape love. You can try as hard as you want. You can strain and you can grunt like a weightlifter. But you cannot manufacture agape love. It can only come from God pouring his love into your life. And it overflowing from you into the lives of others around you. Now, it still takes effort and choice on our part. But God supplies the means. It comes from him. So do you love God? Do you love God? I mean, it's, a rel- it's relatively easy to declare, I love God. I love God. After all, it's like a private relationship with an invisible God. Who can tell you you don't? Who's going to know the difference? Well, this is where verse 20 comes in because it stands to call any bluff. It says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, the Holy Spirit writing this through John doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't say, anyone who... Hates his brother, well, he just has a different understanding of his social responsibility. Or, or, well, we can't really tell what's in his heart. We don't want to be judgmental. <laughs> no, the Holy Spirit says, if he doesn't love his brother, he's a liar for saying that he loves God. There's other places in this, in this letter where we see similar, very clear, very black and white language. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Why would God say that? Because there's no difference between loving God and loving his people. There's no difference between serving God and serving his people. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. They're one and the same. They're connected. They're inseparable. Remember when... Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church Jesus said Saul Saul why do you persecute them no wait he didn't say that did he what did he say he said Saul Saul why are you persecuting me seeing as much as you do it to one of the least of those brothers of mine you have done it to me Jesus said there's no difference you cannot separate how you treat a Christian from how you treat Christ, they're inseparable. Whatever you do to a believer in Christ, whether good or bad, you're doing to Christ himself. You can't separate the two. Why is that? Because a believer has been united with Christ. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. His spirit, his human spirit is united with the spirit of Christ. The spirit of God indwells him. If you hurt a believer, you hurt Christ. If you love a believer, you love Christ. If you hate a believer, you hate Christ. That's what this passage says. I didn't make it up. So whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, does that mean that if, any, if at any point we're not loving a brother or sister, then we have no love for God? Is that what that's saying? No. We all go through times where we're not loving others like we should. But we can't remain there. That's what this is saying. If that's you, you cannot remain there. Because when you're abiding in Christ, he points those things out. He says, hey, that thing you're doing there, that's wrong. And we feel it right here. The Spirit of God convicting us. And he shows us this is how you should be acting. So we don't remain there. He impresses upon us the need for change. And when we yield to him, he gives us the power to change. He didn't just say, go figure it out. Make this right. He gives us the wisdom and the power to do it. But we still have a choice to make because we can resist the spirit. We We can just fill our life with other distractions and ignore it. But you can't stay in that place if you're in Christ So, while there may be times where we're not loving a brother and sister, we'll repent, we'll change, we won't remain there any longer. I say it often it's not about perfection, it's about what? Progress, moving forward, becoming more and more Christ like. We'll never be perfect, but God says if you don't have this right relationship, you need to change that, you need to grow. So maybe God is pointing to some relationships in your life right now. Maybe it's one particular person that maybe you hate them. Maybe you're just not loving them like you should. Or maybe it's a whole bunch of people. Well, if that's the case, praise God in one sense, (laughs) that that's his spirit in you telling you that's not right. You need to get right. With this person. Because in as much as you're not loving them. You're not loving me. So that's a good thing. In one sense. And he's giving you the opportunity. And not only that. The ability to change. And the cool thing is. The world will see. The fullness of God's agape love. Displayed in you. When you make that right. See we go from. God-haters, to God-lovers, to people-lovers. Verse 21, and God has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Once again, agape love, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It says it right here. He's given us this command. In fact, the the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, and the second greatest, love your neighbor as yourself, love others. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. One cold evening during the holiday season, a little six- or seven-year-old boy was sitting outside a store shivering. He had no shoes. His clothes were rags. And a young woman passing by saw the little boy, and she could read the longing on his face. And she took the little boy by the hand, and she led him into the store. And she bought him a whole new set of warm winter clothes. And they came back outside onto the street. And the woman said to the child, now you can go home and have a very happy holiday. The little boy looked up at her and asked, are you God, ma'am? And she smiled down at him and replied, no, son, I'm just one of his children. And the little boy then said, I knew you had to be some relation. <laughs> That's someone seeing God's agape Love in us. His unconditional, humble, sacrificial love. I knew you had to be some relation. That's what God's love looks like. Now again, there's probably nothing new in these verses for you. We talked about agape love. We talked about God's spirit in us. We talked about all this before. But chances are, we still need to be reminded of it. And again, this passage serves as a comfort and also a warning for us, a challenge. So I want to wrap up this way with a very practical application. What if you find yourself in a place where you're really struggling to love someone else? Maybe one or many people. You're just struggling to do that. What should you do? Well, let's first diagnose this. We saw that if we're not loving others as we should, then what are we also not doing? We're not loving God as we should. That's real clear. Our relationships with others are always a reflection of our relationship with God. So we're not loving God as we should. So let's go back to the source of that love and motivation in verse 19. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Our lack of love doesn't come from a lack of love on God's part or his love for us but from a lack of realization of God's love for us. Charles Spurgeon said this, love believed is the mother of love returned. And I think that's true. He said, if you want to love Christ more, think more of him. Think more of what you have received from him. I think that's good counsel. In other words, if we abide in Christ and focus on the love he has for us and the immeasurable ways that he's demonstrated this love for us in the past and right now and will in the future, it'll change us. It has to. This is what it means to live in God and live in love. So if you're struggling to love one or more other people, are you ready to make a change? I mean, are you like really ready? Not just a, yeah, yeah, I want to make a change, but to actually do something to follow the command of God to love them, then do this. Start by meditating on the love that God has for you. Meditate on that. Write out, look up and write out some verses that speak of God's love for you. And if you're struggling to find some, let me know. I'll send you a whole bunch of them. (laughs) Write them out and read them every day. And meditate on them. Fill your mind. Think on those verses that speak of God's love for you. And then talk to God about His great love for you. Thank Him for it. Ask the Holy Spirit to produce this love in you. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, it's a a person. You can talk to Him, He's a person. He wants to counsel you and teach you and empower you to love these other people. What's the very first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love. And it's the key to all the others, really. It's love. Without that, the others are meaningless. So focus on God's love for you and ask the Holy Spirit to produce that same love in you. We love because he first loved us. And if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So when we see that kind of agape love, that change being lived out in our lives, it gives us this absolute certainty that we are his children. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it was your desire and your plan from the very beginning to have us near to you. Not because of us, certainly, but because of your great love for us. And even when we rebelled against you, when we hated you, you demonstrated your great love by becoming that atoning sacrifice for us, our mercy seat. And so, God, we stand where your fire is already burned. And we sang this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God, thank you that you still desire to be with us. You even desire to dwell in us. You've placed your spirit in those who believe. And so God, help us to yield to your spirit in our lives so that he might produce that fruit in us that you so desperately want to see, especially that of love. And God, if there are relationships in our lives right now That are not pleasing to you. I prayed that by your spirit. You'd show those to us. You'd impress upon us the need to make it right. God even those who've hurt us. Help us to show them your unconditional sacrificial love. God we want this because we want the world to see. Your agape love in and through us. We want them to worship our God. To bring glory to you. So help us to live out this passage. In our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship him.